Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which this episode was recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Ulani people and their tribes. We pay our respects to elders past, present and future. We acknowledge and are inspired by the rich history of storytelling that comes from our First Nations people and their traditional stewardship of our lands. You mother fana. Fun Lab. Happy New Year and welcome to this episode of the You Mother Funner podcast. I'm your host, Jane Street. How's 2024 been for you so far? Well, wherever you are, I hope it's been good to you. This episode, I am speaking with Chelsea Mannix. We had this conversation earlier last year and I'm so excited for you to hear it. Chelsea is the Chief People Officer at FunLab. She's part of our executive team and has such a passion for what we do here at FunLab and all of the people, our mother funners, that make it happen. She's been around for a long while and has some great stories to share. I hope you enjoy listening. Hi, Chelsea. How are you? I'm great, Jane. Good afternoon, I think. Good morning for me. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm based in the United States at the moment and it is my afternoon yesterday. So I'm a little bit behind you all. Yeah, wild. But we can meet in the daylight hours, which is always good when you're working Absolutely. between Australia and the time zone of Pacific, Pacific time. time. So yeah, California, which is great because it's synchronous office hours for half the day, which is great. My afternoon is your morning. Yeah, that's good. And then you get your protected time before everyone else is awake and at work. <laughs> exactly. Do all your things. If you could uh, describe yourself in three words, Chelsea, what three words would you choose? Gosh, we love asking this question in interviews. I've never thought about it for myself. What three words? I'd probably say, well, if you ask my family, they'd say bossy, but we just call that assertive. <laughs> friendly. Definitely friendly. Big woo energy. Yeah, woo. Friendly and outgoing. Like I have, I have a lot of energy. Well, probably inquisitive. So I've asking people lots of questions so it's very hard for me to be interviewed Jane I will admit I want to ask you all the questions <laughs> yeah I mean it's an interview about yourself rather than me awesome so uh, obviously you're in America what's like your role right now what do you do for fun mm, that's Chelsea? a good question I'm wearing a, a few different hats at the moment so you know, if I meet new people that, that don't know much about our business, I guess I'm like the representative of our executive team here on the ground at the moment. So I'm just explaining myself as being like the COO equivalent for the US as we piece together how we're going to operate here, learn more about the different things that we need to be doing to operate in the US. I'm essentially wearing that hat and then obviously still doing, um, still being part of my role back in Australia. The other part of what I've been doing here is working with our property team in Australia to, you know, just check out some of the locations that we're, we're keen to expand our many brands to. So you get to scout out property. What do you do when you do that? Do you kind of put on video chat and walk around and do a little storytelling and that kind of thing? <laughs> well, first of all, we have a group of brokers that we're working with here. So real estate people. So they essentially are looking for locations that would suit what we want to do in the US, which is to bring holy moly to the US to start with. And they know what sort of size that we're looking for and what sort of locations that we're looking for. So obviously, you know, places where people would go out and we're looking in, you know, a range of different locations, not dissimilar to what we see in Australia. Lots of shopping center groups are starting to fill some of their spaces with more entertainment. Cool. And, you know, we're seen as, a, as an anchor tenant that could go into those sort of 
entertainment leisure precincts. When I'm going to look at a location, I'm just looking at, you know, what's near us, what's happening around, is there foot traffic, is there, you know, is there parking, is uh, the, you know, is it the kind of area a Funlay brand would do well in? And then when I look in the properties, I'm taking lots of photos, mainly for our development team, because they have lots of questions, you know, everything from they want to see the electrical switchboards, how many columns are in the space, you know, what's existing. Yeah, right. Is it a pretty like learning curve for you a little bit? Yeah, well, interestingly, I, I did a similar thing when we were looking to take our trampoline brand Sky Zone, which I'm sure a lot of people know we held the master franchise for Sky Zone, which is the world's biggest indoor trampoline park. And we had the franchise for Australia and New Zealand. And we also took the franchise for a period to take it to the UK. Cool. So we went to the UK in 2015, kind of doing something similar. And I was working with CBRE at the time, who were our brokers, and we were looking for locations that we could turn into trampoline parks. But then we ended up selling our franchise rights back to the home zone of the US, Sky Zone. And they ended up opening an, an entity there. And what's interesting about that phase in our growth was you know, we just had Strike and Sky Zone back then. So just bowling, bowling and jumping, basically. Yeah, bowling and jumping. That's right. And we weren't, <laughs> we weren't fun lab. We didn't call ourselves mother funners. We were strikers and Sky Zonians, and we were, you know, a much smaller business. We'd had a tremendous period of growth thanks to the Sky Zone brand, because Strike, we used to open one venue a year. If you look at our first dozen years. We kind of just opened one venue a year. There was one year I think we did two venues, but it was a, then that seemed like pretty um, exciting growth back then, a new venue every year. And then we took the Sky Zone franchise and we opened three venues in one year. And it nearly killed us, but it was so exciting. So you're obviously the chief people officer now, but what, mm-hmm. what was your role in that space when you were three years? I oh, sorry, three venues in one year. I feel like I was in the same role and we just weren't as big. Yeah. We were much more hands-on. So, you know, Naz Wilson, a lot of you know, who's who was in learning and now is, um, you know, people experience role. And Dean Cullen, who was a long-time mother funner, we essentially went over and got trained up and we came back and did all of the training of all the new venues. So we were much more hands-on. Nazzy did all the party training. I did all the sky guard training. And Dean did all the um, reception training. And then, you know, Blaze was doing party host training. Like we were all very hands-on um, back at that time. So it was a really exciting time for the business. And I think the first time as Strike, we could actually manage different brands. So then the the rolling into Holy Moly felt really natural for us to then create our own brand and roll out another brand. The Holy Moly, I think, is a brand that sums up FunLab the best. Because Michael saw what was happening, you know, this is Michael, right? He's very very entrepreneurial. He's always looking out. What's next? What's new? What could we bring into our existing venues or what could we do that's, that's, you know, hot right now? That's how we got in. You know, that's where Laser Tag came from. That's where karaoke, escape rooms, trampoline parks. And then Michael noticed that, people were doing what we did with bowling, which was taking a nostalgic old school activity and adding a bar. And he thought we could do something like that. We all agreed, you know, this is what we do. We can do this. 
trampolining is old school fun that we could bring to people. Was there alcohol in trampolines? There wasn't. It's the only brand that we didn't have alcohol. Oh, I was thinking I'm sure there wasn't, but oh my gosh, that that sounds wild. That, yeah, it would have been wild actually. So, you know, we discovered, hey, we can make an old school activity fun again. That's what we do. So we put our minds to um, envisaging what putt-putt or mini golf with a fun lab take on it would look like. And in five months, we'd come up with, you know, and when I say we, I certainly don't mean myself. So there's a whole creative and design team. We've been really lucky enough to work with a lot of those um, people for a long time. Terence, um, Michael has worked with for over 20 years. Uh, Terence does a, a lot of all of our interior sort of design work. And our creative director, Keith, we've worked with since um, we did a rebrand of Strike. So a really long time. And Keith was really the brainchild behind all of the creative direction of Holy Moly. And, you know, working with Plays and with Sam and with our ops teams, effectively came up with the, the, the name Holy Moly. Um, it was going to be a couple of different names. I'm lucky we landed on Holy Moly. Then they came up with the design, how we were going to operate it, found the first location and within and we opened to the public in September. Michael had, you know, suggested that we do something like this in March 2016. And in September 2016, we had a brand, we had uniforms, operating procedures, had hired a whole team, had found a location in this old church in the middle of Fortitude Valley. And we launched to the public. And I mean, that really sums up Fun Lab. We can move quickly. We can be really entrepreneurial and innovative. And we can just bring some really fun concepts to life. And then, you know, suddenly we went into a high growth phase with Holy Moly. And that was actually the moment that we thought, okay, we call people who work at Strike Strikers, people who work at Sky Zone Skyzonians. What are we going to call these people who work at Holy Mollies? Well, we landed on Holy Rollers. Oh, like, that's nice, actually. We had a newsletter that went to everyone who worked at Strike. We did a newsletter for everyone who worked at Spiza. And we're like, this is getting crazy. We can't do three newsletters, have three different names. And in the back end, we were just starting to consider that consolidation of our businesses into an entity that we we called fun lab so when we did that it just made sense to go you know what all of our employees should move to, to be covered by that um to be work for fun lab and then we landed on calling ourselves mother funners yeah awesome regardless of the brand that you worked for it's such just like a interesting way to hear how you come to their company rather mm. than you know a lot of people will be like all right we're going to do this thing and then branch out but it just mm. is traditional kind of pretty organic. It comes. Yeah, it does. super and organic. Because as you know, Jane, being a mother fun out, like we love voting on things, you know, we're pretty democratic. We don't, um, we certainly don't have a CEO that likes to just make a decision and force his way down the chain. So when we even came up with the name of what we wanted to call ourselves, we put out a survey and we, um, there were th we landed on three options. One was Mother Funner. One was Fun Labrador. <laughs> what if you're a cat person? <laughs> I can't even think of, believe we landed on that name. And then one was so bad that I now can't even remember it. But anyway, overwhelmingly, it was like, you know, 
in the 80th percentile people voted for us to become mother funners so that's where our name our name originated from amazing yeah so uh, you've obviously been around FunMed for a long time do you want to talk about your sort of origin story, how you kind of mm-hmm. came into contact, I guess, with Michael Schreiber, our CEO? How did that all start? Yeah, sure. It was pre-Fun Lab. So when I finished high school, I got a job at Time Zone, um, the game Ooh. brand that everyone knows. <laughs> there were three time zones in the city, actually, in the city of Melbourne, sorry, the huge time zone on Swanson Street. And I worked there actually with Ben Wiles, our CTO. So this is in the mid-90s. And then I thought, you know what? I've had enough of getting free games and giving free games to all my mates. I want free movies in my college, you know, in my university job. So I went and worked at Village, but they were opening a brand called Intensity, which is an arcade brand. And Michael Schreiber was the marketing manager of Intensity. Oh, right. So I didn't really know Michael at that time. I was, you know, he was the marketing manager. I helped uh, launch Intensity, the arcade um, venue at the Jam Factory on Chapel Street. And then a friend of mine that I met there saw a job going for this new arcade at Crown Casino. And we thought, let's go put our hat in the ring. We got on the launch team. And I remember sitting in the room. I felt like the most introverted person in the group. This was the loudest, brightest, most colourful group of people you've ever seen, Jane. So we were in this launch group and it was this colourful group of characters that had been hired to work in a concept called Galactic Circus. Not too dissimilar to Archie's um, in, in what we offered. And the idea was it was like being at the circus. We were given a spot in Crown Casino, which was the walkway, now the food court, between the casino and the car park. So we never closed. We were 24 hours. There weren't even doors on the venue. Oh, my God. You could literally walk from the car park through Galactic Circus and go to the casino. But you essentially curated your own character. And we ran this sideshow. Blaze Whitnish started as a party host there. John Tessie and Thaya were our security guards. No way. I didn't know that. That's so funny. Yeah. And they then, you know, got interested in in all these games that we had and started fixing them. Lots of different characters that people know in our business came from that time. So, yeah, we all had these characters and this was Michael's business. So Michael had left Intensity, had gone into partnership, and this was their their business, Galactic Circus. So that's when I first started working with Michael and we, we had a number of venues. We opened the what is now where Kingpin is downstairs. Michael opened that. Kingpin was so, a brand that Michael created. What did you actually study at uni? Not HR. <laughs> I did a comms degree. I did a journalism degree, essentially. So I finished university and then I got, I had two options um, on the table. One was to, you know, continue my journalism and take this apprenticeship in Jakarta at the Jakarta Post, strangely. So it was one option was move to Indonesia and, and do your um, cadetship in Jakarta and then the other option yeah and then the other option was EDG the entertainment development group that had Galactic Circus and another concept in Crown Casino called Barcode they were opening those two venues in New York City in Times Square I decided New York sounded much more fun than Jakarta and and off I went and I guess since then because when I went I did all the hiring and all the training for people who had worked in the front of house roles 
So I kind of got pigeonholed, I guess, a little bit as the people person. <laughs> and here I am a very long time later. Uh, and that, and look, that business didn't go as well as we'd hoped. We opened, you know, it was a 24-hour drinking and games concept. And, you know, at Crown Casino, that made sense, right? Our peak time on the roster at Barcode was between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. That's when we had the most of our shifts. Because all the other pubs shut, is that why? And exactly. Everything shut, everyone. Wow. There used to be a lot more um, nightclubs in Melbourne's casino. People would come come out on their way home, play Daytona, drink with their friends. Daytona, what a game. <laughs> yeah, and it was this was peak Daytona time, right? Yeah, what what kind of like time period are we saying? So Crown was around so this like is 90s? Crown's like 97, 98, 99. It was when Dance Dance Revolution came out. I remember I had uh, what I thought was possibly the best job at the time. My Saturday night shift wasn't at Galactic Circus. It was at Barcode and me and one of my best friends, we dressed up in matching outfits, which we then wear out later to raves. And we just were Dance Dance Revolution promo girls where we just had to do DDR and people would watch us, you know, the crowds that um, that <laughs> yeah. game attracts. We put the actual game right at the front. So it would draw a crowd and then that crowd would then come in to, to barcode. That's so <sighs> but, amazing. Yeah, it was. It was a really <laughs> fun time. Yeah, that just didn't work in New York though because where we were in Times Square, you couldn't serve alcohol after 4 a.m. And you couldn't start serving it again until after midday. So our sort of 24-hour concept, which we thought would work perfectly in the city that never sleeps, couldn't serve alcohol for a big chunk of, of the time. And you can imagine yeah, right. the rents were excruciating. And for yet sure. long term, the, the business didn't work out. Michael split from that group and went separate ways. And what he discovered in opening all these concepts, the one thing he saw was bowling was a constant. It was a real anchor, a destinational form of entertainment. People would book to bowl. They would come to bowl and then they would do the other things while they were there. So in that moment, you know, from Kingpin version one, Michael identified what he wanted to do next. And that was just to make bowling cool again, essentially. Yeah. Have a bar concept with bowling. So in the original days, in 2001, when he founded the company, it was Strike Bowling Bar. He found his first location on Chapel Street. He opened in 2002. Sam Elionis laid the very first bowling lanes in our first venue. So Sam's now our chief development officer, and he's been with Michael continuously since then. Wow. So how long mm -hmm. was your time in New York? I was only there for six months. And then I went traveling. I didn't come home for three years and I flew home, surprised my family. And I went and worked one day for my dad. My dad had betting agencies, TABs, Melbourne Cup. Oh, classic. Big, big betting day. <laughs> A big betting day. The only day of the year I would ever say I'd help my dad and I'd just, you know, clean, clean or, or serve people not knowing how to do anything properly. And for anyone who knows our CEO, Michael Schreiber, he's not a gambler. But as is the way, this is a public holiday in Melbourne. Most people go in and put a bet on the big race, the Melbourne Cup. So this one day I've come back after three years away, I work at my dad's TAB around the corner from Michael's house is the one day that Michael decides to place a bet. He comes in, we see each other. He's like, what are you doing? So I'm home for a few months. 
And he said, can you help us? We're launching in Brisbane, our first interstate venue. And in, in Frankston, simultaneously, this is, just, this is in like September 2004. And that's, that's how I got back involved in, you know, in our business. And I've, I've been, I had a job at the time where I was working in Europe over summer. So every time I would come home, we, if you look at when we've launched our businesses, we would always launch them towards the end of the year. So I would come back and I would do essentially what I'd done in New York, which is just hire the team and, and train them. Yeah, it's incredible. So you do half a year in European summer and then come back for all yeah. summer? Yeah, it was fun. Far out. How did you handle a winter after that? <laughs> Not very well. Maybe that's why I'm really bad. At, I get so cold all the time. But yeah, it was a really fun time. And when we used to launch venues, you know, we didn't have any other venues in the city. So I remember launching in, in Winter Garden. It was our first interstate venue. So we, and we didn't have budget to hire anywhere to train everyone we just had to wait until we could squeeze into the venue till sam and wow travis hatfield who was our um, gm at the time would let us in the venue and the rest of the time i just like i did induction in the hallway of the winter garden shopping center um, <laughs> after hours when we just didn't have budget for that kind of thing wow yeah brisbane was the first interstate so we had yeah. we opened chapel street michael opened chapel street and then qv blaze was helping do marketing and sales at this time ben wild who's now our chief technology sure. officer he was the venue manager so in that time. So came across from the kind of Galactic yeah. Circus kind of interaction family. Exactly. And then we opened Sydney. Our first venue was Entertainment Quarter, which we still have in the group, and that was 2005. So year on year, you know, we kind of just roll, rolled them out after then towards the end of the year. So Far out. fun times. You are a wealth of history in the kind of fun raven I guess, <laughs> uh, entertainment scene. Uh, through that, you're going to have seen lots of different things. What are like some of the biggest challenges to your memory? Maybe like personal ones, I guess, moving to a, New York is scary, but also fun. And then I guess with the business, is there sort of things that really have stood out for you and been times of growth and that kind of thing? I remember when we opened our seventh venue and it just felt like a real stretch. I remember us all going, oh, my God, we can't possibly ever have more than seven venues because this is just exhausting. We can't, we're really stretched thin at that point. And I think that's because, you know, we kind of had a diet of doing more with less. It was like our unwritten mantra in those early days. And we just didn't have enough bodies to help launch these venues and maintain the ones that we had. So in that, I guess the learning was, yeah, you can't do it all just with this small group of people. And we started to, I guess, look at our structure in a different way. And funny to think about when we have 43 venues now um, that we thought seven was too many. Yeah, wild. But I think we started to make, not that we weren't trying to make smart hiring decisions. I think you, you, know, you always go into it assuming that you're going to try and hire the, the best person. But I think we realized just how important it was to have the right venue manager especially in our remote locations and where we could to have people who understood what it was to be in the business so a striker at the time so we had you know people that really understood our culture and what we wanted to create in every venue because if you didn't have that and if you didn't launch remotely in particular with people that knew what we wanted to do as a business it was harder so we've really taken that lesson I think how was it to have those hard conversations like were there some big chats and that kind of thing or did it all, oh, it all yeah. always quite productive and 
Oh, no, absolutely not. There were some really difficult conversations over that time. You know, there were some really inappropriate things that that came out that we weren't really across because when we operated remotely and we weren't traveling to the venue as often as maybe we should have, stuff was happening that we had no idea about. You know, we didn't have a structure that allowed for boots on the ground regularly. And we were just trying to stay in touch with people and trying to work out, you know, if everything was ticking along. Yeah. And I guess you're also sort of early internet days too and not being so digitally blinded, right? Yeah, that's right. We didn't always know what was what really was going on. How did communications work? So this is, you know, mid mid two thousands. We were very, very much pick up the phone kind of business. And it's really when you weren't hearing back from people that you got a little bit suspicious as to what might be happening on the ground. And often you could start to see it in the numbers, you could start to pick it up, but it was wasn't until you went there that you really knew what was happening. But yeah, we were very much a pick up the phone kind of business, even to the point that our booking sheet used to be an Excel spreadsheet. Not even Google Sheets automatically updating. This is pre-Google existing. This was when only one person could access a document at one time. Around six or seven venues, round about then, we consolidated our sales team. So previously, as we launched, we would hire a sales coordinator and they would work in the venue and do walkthroughs and bookings that way. And then eventually we centralized and we had the sales team in our office in Richmond with us. And what we had to do is the venue would obviously have their booking sheet open so they could see what was happening for the day. But if the sales coordinator in Richmond wanted to add a booking in, they would have to ring the venue and say, hey, Jane, Yon Shift, can you do me a favor and close the booking sheet? I just I just got a party for this weekend and I just need to put it in the booking sheet. So you would have to close the booking sheet. I would quickly update the party information and then I'd ring you and say, you can open it again now. Fire out. So you're rocking it like a shared drive of some kind. <laughs> well, not even, it wasn't even shared. It was individual, but you couldn't make an edit change when someone else had opened the document. So we were very used to being on the phone with people regularly and that was certainly a, a preferred communication channel for us. So being face-to-face was really important. So you have been here through uh, the, the times pre-COVID, post-COVID. In the kind of COVID times, what was it like as part of the people team? Because I guess you're watching venues who you kind of know the operations of and not be able to do things, but also you've got people coming to you who are saying, hey, I might have to let some staff go. How do I deal with this and all that kind of thing? What was that like? Yeah, look, I think um, there's lots of swear words and I would just say it was it was a torrid time. At this point, two things had happened. We'd had international expansion. So we're in New Zealand and we're in Singapore. And we're in Australia. We had about 38 venues at this point. And the other thing that had happened was we'd sold the business in December 2019. And between agreeing to sell the business and settlement, there's a bunch of processes that have to happen, including changeover of leases and agreements and some um, foreign investment um, review, all these things that happened. We'd celebrated having new owners and the handover of the settlement date was scheduled for the 27th of March, 2020. Oh, right. So in that week before all the um, the Australian lockdown was announced, we heard about this virus coming, right? And we thought, well, wow, this is going to affect our trade on the weekend. The direction was don't overuse casual labour. We don't know what's ahead. We might be really quiet. 
And we established what we now call our helping hand fund that Michael seeded money to, to support those casuals because at the time, no one really knew what was happening. And then, of course, that weekend on the Sunday, our Prime Minister at the time, Scott Morrison, declared a national lockdown. So suddenly all of our venues had to close within 24 hours. At the end of that following week, we were meant to transact and have new owners. But because our EBITDA dropped so significantly, i.e. to zero uh, dollars, that they they pulled out of the deal. Wow. What is, is there like some big legal times in there? Do you have a pay a fee because you've backed out of the deal? No, no, no. There was a clause in there if if our earnings dropped below, I think it was 10%, then there'd be cause to get out of the deal. And, you know, you have to remember in March 2020, social distancing was something that no one wanted to do. And we were in the business of of getting together and socialising. Lots of high touch points. Massively high touch business. So there was certainly that that initial period where we then had to stand down, you know, everyone in the business. It was it was, they were they were our darkest days. There's no doubt because our business went from the highs of being sold and the plans of future growth to now being worth nothing. All being closed, we were all locked down in our homes in Australia, New Zealand, and Singapore, and we and we couldn't imagine a future that might not include us and our businesses. We didn't know what rent relief we would get. We didn't know what the wage subsidy programs would be for our people if there even was going to be such a thing. Effectively, though, those wage subsidy programs kept us being able to be connected and all of our people able to to eat and us included you know pay your mortgage pay your rent all of those things I always think about it like Maslow's pyramid so we went from in our team dealing with you know people's leadership journey their progression what they wanted to do next and um, making sure they had a really fantastic journey in, in the time that they're with us be it a short time or a long time but now we suddenly went to dealing with the basics people's ability to eat and and seek shelter our role changed incredibly and it was just about that stuff at the start and once the wage subsidies came in that helped and then we focused on giving people purpose because I think everyone kind of forgets or might not realise, particularly in some um, states like Victoria, certainly in New Zealand. So people were struggling with a reason to get out of bed in the morning and what they would do. So we really shifted a really big focus to keep people connected. We had a whole bunch of mother funders across the business. Some are still with us. Some uh, have moved on to other businesses who were integral in creating programs where people could stay connected. And I think that the big turning point was in the middle of the year, New Zealand could fully open again in that first year of COVID, 2020. Around June, right? Yeah, that's right. So that was the first test that we had of what the human behaviour was going to indicate coming out of COVID. Were people going to be nervous, cautious, not wanting to be in environments where they're close to other people? Or as in reality, what we found were they just desperate to connect with humans again, to do it in a safe way, but to actually interact and be in community and be around people. And when we reopened in New Zealand, Newmarket Archibald's had the biggest week in the company's history, not just in Newmarket's history, in the company's history. And we went, hold on, 
people are going to want to come to a fun lab venues again. People are going to want to get together again. This is exactly what people are missing. So we started to see hope. Then New Zealand had to close down again, of course. But yeah, lots of starts and stutters, I think, in the COVID journey, right? Totally, totally. I mean, except for Perth, which was this island. Once they reopened, <laughs> they put a hard border up and they just went. Yeah, I mean, they they can do that, right? Yeah, so thankfully we had this distributed workforce and actually all of the venues we were planning on launching in 2020, 2021 were actually in Western Australia, in Perth. So they could open, they could trade um, with pretty much restriction free. We couldn't get in there to support them, but that in itself helped teach us some lessons on, you know, doing more things remotely. Yeah, very interesting. And I guess it maybe doesn't give you the kind of like backing to be in the States to be on the fruits on the ground, just that someone leading the charge. Yeah, I think it taught us that we don't have to always be there. We can support teams remotely. I mean, we we were really lucky. We had, um, we call them our COVID ninjas, people who were able to get in and stay in Perth for an extended period. And that really helped us. But it made us realise we don't need, you know, 100 people on the ground to launch a venue. We just need a few key people. And I guess, yeah, to your point, we probably applied some of that thinking to coming to the US. Yeah, cool. Like in there as well, I feel like you're someone who can make time for everybody. How do you manage that? Uh, I think it's just remembering that what it's like to be in all the different roles. You know, when you've started in a business as so many of us have as a casual employee or an hourly part-time employee and you might feel really disconnected from what's happening you know in the office or where decisions are being made i really value being able to stay connected to to people at all levels of the business and i know that listening to those people really gives us a take on where our culture's at and how we're going as a business and you know one of the things that not that it keeps me up at night but if something was to keep me up at night it's how do we maintain the heart of a small business as as we grow and I value hearing from different people in the business to make me know whether we are on track to to maintain the culture and the things that we hold to be really true or if we're a little bit off in in certain areas or we might not be listening or taking action in a way that we used to be able to do because we were smaller so I really value being able to stay connected and just tune in and listen to how people are experiencing their time as a mother funner. And the reason it's not just the job of, you know, we're not the people and culture team because culture isn't something that's just mandated by our people experience team. It's in every venue. And you know, Jane, because you've worked in a number of different fun lab locations, they're not all exactly the same. It's not a cookie cutter culture, but they all have bits that are similar, which feeds into, you know, the whole so one of the kind of cultural things we do, I guess, or like traditions is wearing costumes to interviews, right? Yeah. Obviously you've been around and that's not been a day one move. No, it wasn't day one. <laughs> but I was wearing a costume when I first started working for Michael. Did you? <laughs> yeah. So these costumes that we had to create, all these characters at Galactic Circus, we created our own character. So mine was Astro Girl. So I had this like lycra dress and roller skate and I would just roller skate around oh, cool. crown. That was my character. Oh, best job ever. I was so good. And I, now I think who would allow you to roller skate around Crown Casino? But no one ever said anything. <laughs> costumes, dressing up, we've always linked it directly to fun. So for us, you know, wearing costumes in the office and costumes being something that we do with our guests and dress up, that's always been part of our DNA. But it wasn't, we didn't formalise it until Wayne Robson, who was a manager in our Caval Avenue strike, 
suggested that we we do it. He was doing it for his interviews and told our team, which I think was a Solani um, Nazanite at the time, this idea that he was doing. And we were like, oh my goodness, why haven't we always done this? That is just the natural extension of, of who we are. Yeah, absolutely. So what's some of your favourite costumes that you've come across? There's been so many good ones. So it's really difficult because sometimes you love the costume so much. You want to hire the person. You feel like it It actually, it does play a role in your bias and you have yeah, to go, sure. no, just because I don't, I love the costume isn't the reason to hire someone. The really great one was, um, it was an internal interview. Tessa came into the office and she came as a crazy cat lady. So she came with her dressing gown like a face mask on, like she's just doing a bit of beauty work and had a face mask and her cat. And she came into the office, which as you know, in our support office, it's a dog-friendly office. She came <laughs> in with her cat and sat in the interview with her cat on her lap as this crazy cat woman. It was brilliant. It's so good. That really, it's a nice way to show people's like level of commitment and effort in terms of bringing the fun. It right? absolutely is. A couple of years ago, I hired Una, Chief Marketing Officer, which was a new role for us in the executive. Una had to come um, to her interviewing costume. So we do it from executive level down. And it's really to send a message at the start that this is the kind of business we are. We say who we are on yeah. the box. That's who we are. We, we dress up. We do things a bit crazy. The office is a little bit loud. And there have been people who've opted out of the recruitment process because they don't think that's for them and that's okay that's why we do it absolutely so yeah we're fun mate it's so yeah. many different it, things there's so many facets to it and it, but if you don't like that you won't like being a mother funner so it helps people to be able to self-select out out of our interview process and say you know what that is not the kind of business i want to be a part of and we can say that's fine we would have not liked being a mother funner if you don't like that sort of style of fun uh yeah fun such a I don't know. I didn't have a great costume when I first interviewed because <laughs> I, uh, I think I'd just come back from overseas and COVID and yeah. I just had whatever was in my wardrobe at the time. <laughs> well, that's it. But they're some of the most creative costumes, right? When people just can create something out of nothing. Yeah. And of course, Absolutely. in COVID, we had a lot of people dress up with whatever they had in their house because they couldn't, you know, source any other kind of costumes. And and it's just about having fun, right? You don't need to go and hire a costume to have a bit of fun. You know, people have made their own costumes. People, There's this person that walks around Melbourne. I hadn't seen them before with a paper mache carrot. Have you ever seen what? this person? Cool. Mm. No, but I'll look up yeah. them. The carrot man. And so we had someone come to the interview and they'd made a paper mache carrot at home oh, in lockdown. Fair. And I was like, what? what are you? And they're like, I'm the carrot man. <laughs> and I'm like, what's that? And did they have the story behind it? Did they have some sort of like paparazzi shots of Carrot Man? They absolutely did. Knew what this person, they weren't successful. And they recently sent me a picture because I'd emailed them, obviously, this is two or three years ago now. I'd emailed them for the interview process and they'd seen the Carrot Man and they'd got a photo with the Carrot Man and they emailed me their photo just so I could see, even though they, you know, didn't end up getting oh, a job. I love that. That's really cool. I feel like you have such a beautiful way to connect with people, actually, Chelsea. Thank you. I was kind of like, finally, I get to see them, but I actually saw Caroline <laughs> before I came to the US. So Did you? They're a person. You will see them, Jane. Look out for them in Melbourne. <laughs> I'm gonna, but is it also because you're not like, you know, when it's not in your sphere of thinking and you don't really notice it until you're like, oh, shit, is it? that person has got a carrot. Now you're going to see Caroline. I bet you you're yeah, going right. to email me in a week. Is there suburbs of um, interest for Caroline? CBD. 
oh, CBD. Okay, that's a lot of space to be. But, all right, but yeah, that, they're in the city. <laughs> You'll see before. That's so funny. Um, you... The other question I was going to ask is, what's your favourite thing about being a mother's runner? I think just the high level of trust that comes with being a mother runner. You can really push the boundaries in a way that you probably couldn't do in other businesses. You can. There's never a silly idea. We work for a CEO who is open to you trying different things and different ways and he just trusts that in you and and believes and listens so you can try different things and I love that autonomy and the freedom that comes with that and I think we've been able to just create and encourage really awesome people to work with us because who who want to be in an environment like that right and who wants to go to work for their whole life and and not have a fun place to work and that's He's allowed us to create that. Yeah, it's pretty pretty exciting. It's very fun for work. Mm. It's hard sometimes because, you know, there's always yeah. things coming along, right? And absolutely. And sometimes it's really hard because we just move so fast and not everyone likes the pace, you know, and we change and pivot. We were pivoting well before COVID, right? We see something and we're like, oh, we're going to do that. But aren't we yeah. doing this? Oh, and we're going to do that and that. Ooh, get on board. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So it doesn't work for everyone. But I think people who enjoy that kind of pace and environment, it works. It works well. Yeah, There's absolutely. always something going on, as you know. Yeah. Awesome. Right. Thank you so much for your time, Chelsea. I hope you have a oh, great rest pleasure. of your afternoon. However much you have. You too. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode with Chelsea Minutes. You know, I did end up seeing Carrotman. It was so unexpected. And the first thing I did was pull out my phone to message Chelsea that I'd finally seen him in the flesh. As you can hear, Chelsea has got so many stories. She actually, a couple of years ago, was pretty amazing. She compiled a book of the history of Funlad. She took insights from our mother funners, filled it with so many stories from uh, the past 20 or so years of Funlab. Super, super exciting. If you'd like to uh, potentially read that or get a copy of it, Flick us an email at podcast at fun-lab and we'll do our best to make sure we can do that. If you want to let us know about your character experiences or any other fun stories or feedback, you can email us at podcast at fun-lab.com. Have an awesome rest of your week and we'll be with you next time. You mother funner. Fun Lab. <laughs>